All right, we're going to start right on time. Good evening. Welcome to the first ever summer Bible study. All right, yeah. Thanks to you guys, it was all you. They heard your cries. So uh, we thank you for that. Um, three months is too long between the mine, right? So, all right. A uh, couple of commercials, real quick, because we want to dive into it, because it's from seven to eight. Uh, just a reminder, we meet tonight, we meet next Tuesday, the 26th of June, but then we take the Tuesday before the 4th of July off, we do not meet on the 3rd of July, and then we come back for our last two, the 10th of July and the 17th of July. That will be our last two, alright? We're hoping to cover as much of the book of 1 Thessalonians as we can these four weeks. Uh, also, real quick, just a reminder, and I'll be reminding you all of this, especially through the summer, the mine will start back up Tuesday night, August the 21st, 6.45 till 8 o'clock. Seth will be with us to do worship on Tuesday evenings, uh, and we're going to be doing the book of Romans this fall. So, uh, good study there. Just another couple quick commercials for those of you that have never been in my Bible studies or you're not you know, familiar with who I am and what I do here. Uh, my name is Jeff Royce. I'm a teaching pastor here at Cornerstone, and I do a lot of Bible studies during the week. Uh, two of them that I are, am doing right now that all of you are welcome to come if you're interested in these are Sunday morning. I have a Sunday morning 8.30 Bible study right now on the power of relationships, how to build healthy, safe relationships, how to avoid unhealthy, unsafe relationships. That's in this room at 8.30 every Sunday, and even if you haven't already come, just Start this Sunday. We'd love to have you. Then at 11.30 in this room on Sunday, I'm doing a study on overcoming stress and anxiety God's way. All right? Again, if you haven't been there, but that's something you'd be interested in, uh, please come this Sunday. We would love to have you. In fact, this Sunday at 11.30, at the beginning of the class, I'm giving everybody a stress test in the class. Uh, we want them to see how stressed out they really are. Alright, so uh, you may want to be a part of those studies and we would love to have you. Alright, enough of that. Let's get to our study tonight. First Thessalonians. Let's open up our Bibles. If you have a Bible tonight and want to follow along, First Thessalonians. And we're going to pray here in just a moment and dive right in. Again, four weeks, five chapters. We'll see how far we get. Alright? Okay, let's pray. Lord God, thank you so much for the opportunity we have to be here tonight, to study your word, to be together, uh, Lord, just to be in your presence and uh, to hear from you. And Father, we do pray tonight that this is from you tonight, that this is not my thoughts or my words, but Lord, your very thoughts from the mind of God to encourage us, to comfort us, to challenge us, Lord, wherever we are in our walk with you. Father, I pray that tonight's... Uh, messages from your word, Lord, would just fill our hearts and encourage us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, let's dive right into it tonight. Uh, all right, let me start off by saying this. First Thessalonians is a very personal letter from Paul to the Thessalonian Christians in the Greek city of Thessaloniki. Thessaloniki is the second largest city in Greece. Uh, a great, vibrant Christian church still exists in Thessaloniki. Uh, I personally believe that it goes back to the roots 
of what we are reading about here in First and Second Thessalonians in our Bible. All right. Uh, it is also one of Paul's first letters that he ever wrote. Now, the reason we know it's a very personal letter is because most of his letters, when he starts out addressing who he is and telling people who he is, he goes into, I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ, yada, yada, yada. Well, here, if you notice in the first verse, uh, before we actually get into going through verse by verse down through First Thessalonians tonight, I wanted to sort of give you a point of overview that the whole book sort of revolves around. And it's the first principle that we come to tonight in our Bible study. Because if you got the advertisement about this Bible study, I entitled this Bible study, Learning to Make the Most of Our Life Down Here on Earth, or Learning to Get the Most Out of Life. How do I get the most out of the life that God gives me to live while I'm down here on earth? Well, here's the first principle. Live every day in light of eternity. Live every day in light of eternity. You see, what the Bible is going to teach us is that the now matters not just for now, but for eternity. And the reason I say that is I want you to take your Bibles. We're going to do just a quick going through the book of 1 Thessalonians. The return of Jesus Christ and His coming was the main backdrop in this book as you study it. And that's why you'll notice at the end of every chapter, Paul makes a reference to the return of the Lord. Reason being, he wants the Thessalonian Christians at the end of every chapter, at the end of every pause, to be reminded about eternity and the coming of the Lord. Remember, Jesus Himself said in John 14, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto Myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Alright? So now notice, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, the last verse of the first chapter, He says, and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus our Deliverer from the coming wrath. So there's a reference to the coming of the Lord at the end of the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians 1. By the way, just a side note, then Paul devotes a whole book to the coming wrath. That is 2 Thessalonians. If you want to read a book about the coming wrath of God upon the world that rejects Jesus Christ, then sometimes study the book of 2 Thessalonians. Alright? That's Paul's next letter to the Thessalonian Christians. Alright? So that's chapter 1. Then go over to chapter 2 and look at verse 19. Almost the last verse of chapter 2. For who is our hope or joy or crown to boast of before our Lord Jesus at His coming? Is it not, of course, you? For you are our glory and joy. So once again, in verse 19 of chapter 2, he makes reference to the coming of Jesus Christ. Go over to chapter 3 of 1 Thessalonians, verse 13, the very last verse of the chapter. So that your hearts are strengthened in holiness to be blameless before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all His saints. Chapter 4, verse 16. For the Lord Himself will come down from heaven with the shout of command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. 
In fact, beginning in verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians 4 through verse 18, it is the teaching on what we call the rapture. Come back in a couple weeks. We're going to devote a whole Tuesday night to talking about the rapture and what that's all about, the coming of the Lord there. Then if you go over to chapter 5, look at verse 23. Now may the God of peace Himself make you completely holy and may your spirit and soul and body be kept entirely blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I just wanted you to see how important the coming of the Lord was to Paul. And that he wanted to get this message across to the Thessalonians because this whole letter is about learning to make the most out of life. And and one of the principles then that I need to incorporate and apply to my life as a Christian on a daily basis is live in light of eternity every day. Knowing that, first of all, my time on earth is not all there is. Eternity is out there. And the way I live my life down here on this earth for Jesus Christ is going to set me up for eternity. That's a message we got to get across to Christians today. Because there are some Christians, they become a Christian, they accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. They get saved. They're on their way to heaven. And it's like, well, that's, that's it. That's all I need to do, Right? No, salvation, if you understand the Bible, is not the end, it's just the beginning. In fact, what God says is, then through my Christian life, by the way I live my Christian life, it will then determine my uh, position of ruling and reigning and responsibility with Christ for all of eternity. That's pretty important. See, to me, eternity trumps whatever I do on earth, so then I'm going to be more dedicated and committed to Christ and to my relationship with Christ because I then come to a biblical understanding that my responsibility in heaven for all of eternity is going to be determined by how faithful my Christian life is here on earth. That's why Jesus said in the parable of the talents to the people who were coming in, He says, look, you've been faithful over the things that I've given you Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Now I'm going to give you more. That parable speaks about the coming kingdom and God rewarding us for our ministry and service. Now again, we don't do it to become a Christian. We don't do it to get saved. For by grace we are are, uh, saved by faith. No, that's not it. I got so many verses in my head. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Look it up yourself. <laughs> For by grace you are saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Okay, I got it out. Thank you. Alright. Live in light of eternity. Alright? Very, very important. Live in light of eternity. There is more to come. Much more to come. I mean, you know, nowadays, you're a parent, you, you know, you want your children to get an education because you want, you want them to try to, you know, make the most out of the rest of their life and set them up and all of that. I understand that mentality, but how come we don't incorporate sort of that same mentality into our Christian life and understand that the way we live our life down here on this earth affects eternity? That's even bigger. That's huge. 
And so that's one of the reasons why Paul, at every chapter and at the end of every chapter of 1 Thessalonians, reminds them the Lord is coming. The Lord is coming. The Lord is coming. Things aren't going to remain the way they are, so let's live in light of eternity. I'm going to stop in a few minutes for a break for questions and comments, but now let's go up to chapter 1 and just start going through it verse by verse. I'm just going to give you these principles and then just share a little bit about them. Second principle, learning to get the most out of life, become part of a ministry team. Notice in the very first verse, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. They're a team. Paul was not a one-man Christian, one-man show, Lone Ranger Christian, whatever you want to say. He was part of a team. And if you're going to get the most out of life, God is going to encourage you to serve Him as part of a team where you can mutually encourage each other. As the saying goes, all of us are stronger than just one of us. And so God wants to bring us together as the body of Christ and break us out into ministry teams so that there can be this dynamic synergy that takes place so that we can gain and grow from each other and challenge each other and encourage each other. That was true with Paul. That was true with Silas. That was true with Timothy. Notice in verse 2, he uses the plural pronouns. We thank God always for all of you. As we mention you constantly in our prayers, because we recall in the presence of our God and Father your work of faith, labor of love, endurance of hope. We are. They're praying together. They're encouraging each other. They're encouraging the Thessalonians. They're thinking about them. They're, they're just good for each other. Iron sharpens iron, the book of Proverbs says. The book of Ecclesiastes says two are better than one. If one falls, then he's got somebody else to help him up. If he falls alone, who's going to help him up? Uh, it's just huge. So I encourage you that as you strive to grow in your relationship with God and get the most out of life, and as you begin to enter into service and ministry, be part of a ministry team. However small, however big that is, that's huge. That's a biblical principle that runs throughout the Bible, where we get together as a team and we work together for the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, verse 1, get connected to a local church. Notice he says, Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians. Local churches, so important. And, you know, certainly we would love to have you be part of Cornerstone Christian Fellowship. But we understand there are other good churches in the valley here as well. We just ask that you find a church where you can connect with and where you can get involved with. Jesus Christ said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so if you and I want to be involved in what Jesus is involved with and what is his priority, he's going to tell you, well, here's my priority. My priority is the church. Not that there are not other good things out there to get involved with. There are. But Jesus never said, I'm going to build blank. And I'm, no, he says, I'm in the process of building my church. And throughout the book of Romans through Revelation, every letter is written to the church. And when you get to the book of Revelation, the first couple chapters are written to the church. The Bible says in the book of 1 Timothy that the church is the pillar and ground and support and bulwark of the truth of God. I mean, it's just huge. So we've got to get connected to a local church. And all I'm just going to say here is if you're connected at Cornerstone, great. Keep connected. Stay connected. Get more connected. Be 
become part of a ministry team, whatever. But if you're not connected, begin to think and pray and ask God to get you to a place where you can get connected. Where you can get excited about God, excited about serving God, excited about being with other people who are excited about God, and just get excited. All right. Not that I get excited or anything, but anyway. Next, and then we'll stop for a moment. Again, in verse 1. Isn't there a lot in verse 1? Don't compartmentalize your life with God. That's how you get the most out of life, is also by not compartmentalizing your life with God. Notice what he says. Paul, Silas, Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, don't miss this very important small little two-letter word, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, he repeats that concept even at the end of verse 3 when he says, your work of faith, labor of love, and endurance of hope is in our Lord Jesus Christ. Principle there. If you're in Christ through salvation and you've asked Jesus Christ to be your Savior, you're in God the Father and you are in the Lord Jesus Christ. So God then doesn't want you and I to compartmentalize our life with Him. In other words, well, now on Sunday when I come to Cornerstone, that's, that's my life with God. And maybe Tuesday night when I come to the mine, or about, that's my life with God. But, but, but God stays out of my life as far as my work and my hobbies and my relationships. All that. You know, I've got God where I want Him, and that, that's, that's cool, and I like that. And God would say, but that's not the way I designed it. Because if you're in me, then I need to be in every part of your life. And there should be no compartmentalization of, well, this is, this is my God thing. This is what I do with God over here, but God doesn't affect every other area of my life. You see, God would say, I want to be part of every part of your life. That's the way I designed it. That's the way I want it to be so that you can get the most out of life. I want to be in your relationships. I, I want to be in your hobbies. I want to be in your, your play time and just your happy time. I, I want to be in your study time. And your, I want to be in all of that. But don't, compart, don't shove me out. Let me, let me have full reign of your life. It's one of the ways I explain the filling of the Spirit. The Bible says to be filled with the Spirit. Listen. Being filled with the Spirit is not me getting more of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit getting more of me. And it goes along with the whole Family Matters series that Lynn and Ron just finished. Because they took different rooms of the house. And basically what God is saying to us is, am I in that room? Am I in that room? Am I in the garage? And am I in the living room? Am I in the kitchen? Am I in the bedroom? The be- whatever. Am I in every part of your life? Because that's the way God wants it. Because we're in God anyway. So if we begin to compartmentalize Him and just sort of place Him over here to the side in this area of life and don't include Him in all, we're going to miss out. That's how we get the most out of life, by including God in anything, everything, and with anyone that we do something with. There is no such thing as, well... You know, from a Bible perspective, well, my life with God is just this little sliver out here of the pie and then the rest of it is just, no, that's not the way God designed it at all. So, live every day in light of eternity, become part of a ministry team, get connected to a local church and don't compartmentalize your life with God. The first four principles out of the book of 1 Thessalonians of how to get the most out of life. Comments, questions, thoughts before we keep on trucking. Okay. I don't wait long. You all know that, don't you? I just keep going through. All right. Let's go.
Verse 2. Another way to get the most out of life is just by being thankful to God. Notice, we thank God always for all of you as we mention you constantly in our prayers. Now, specifically in this context, he's being thankful for what the way God has worked in the lives of the Thessalonian Christians. But the principle is still the same. If you and I are going to get the most out of our life, we've got to choose to be thankful. We've got to wake up every day and begin to to count our blessings and, and look for the things in our life that we can thank God for and get away from the perspective that we complain and gripe and whine about the things that we don't have and that as a Christian, we praise God for the things that we do have and that we become very thankful for what we have that we become thankful that we know the God of the universe in a personal way. If everything else was taken away from us, that carries us right there. And then along with that, he gives us the presence of his Holy Spirit. He gives us his church, Christian friends, the Bible, on and on and on we could go. In fact, the book of Ephesians chapter 1 says, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We're blessed. Sometimes we don't feel blessed. And sometimes we don't act blessed, you know, but we are blessed. And so we should live that way as a very blessed, thankful people to thank God. You show me somebody who gets up every day and is a thankful person who who is very intentional about thanking God and going through the day and looking for things that they can thank God for. And I'll show you somebody that is learning to get the most out of life. Because they're, they're going to have a gratefulness that just sort of wells up within them and just flows out all over the place. Another principle in verse 2. Be prayerful. We thank God always for all of you as we mention you constantly in our prayers. I mean, prayer is huge in our life. And here again, look at it from this perspective of being part of a ministry team. Notice that Paul, Silas, and Timothy prayed together. Maybe sometimes you're like the rest of us. You struggle a little bit in your prayer life and making prayer the priority that it should be. One of the things that we can do to help us in that regard is to find one or two other people that we can pray together. That will encourage us to pray, you see. So don't try to maybe pray it alone, if you will. Find a couple people in your life that even if you meet once a week before or after work or whatever, or even maybe on a Tuesday night where you can meet here at 6 o'clock before 7 o'clock and you can spend 15 minutes even praying together, that's huge. Prayer is huge. Why? Because the Bible teaches that prayer is one of the primary ingredients to persevere. To persevere. Jesus said it this way in Luke 18.1. Men ought always to pray and not to faint or to give up or to throw in the towel. Prayer is huge. So we need to encourage each other in prayer. Because again, I, I've, I've said it before. You show me a Christian who's just, man, they're just barely hanging on. And I'll show you somebody who's probably not feeling like they're being prayed for. Who maybe is struggling in their own prayer life. Prayer is just huge. So, learning to get the most out of life, because listen, no human being of flesh and blood can spend any time at all in the presence of the God of this universe and not be changed for the good. You can't do it. And that's what prayer, you know, prayer for a lot of us, it's like, well, I go to God to get things. Well, okay, you know, that's part of it. But, but the major part of it is I'm spending time in the presence of God. 
And when I spend time in the presence of God, whether He changes my circumstances or gives me what I want or anything else, is irrelevant to the fact that when I spend time in the presence of God, He's going to change me. He's going to change me whether He changes my circumstances or not. I'm going to be better for having met God in His presence. And what a privilege. One that we just don't take advantage of in the right way. I mean, when Jesus died, the veil of the temple was rent in two, the Bible says, and now we have access at any time, anywhere, any place to come into the presence of God. I confess to you, there have been days in my Christian life where I didn't go into the presence of God once that day. How dumb was that? I mean, you know, I think, wow. You know, to have that privilege of being able to talk to God and share my burdens with God and cast my care upon Him because He cares for me and on and on and on. I mean, why not take advantage of that privilege? So be prayerful. That's one of the ways to get the most out of life. Next, verse 3, be properly motivated. Because we recall, Paul says, in the presence of our God and Father, your work of faith, labor of love, and endurance of hope. Notice. Again, part of the Christian life is work. Part of the Christian life is labor. Part of the Christian life is endurance. Not to become a Christian, but because I am a Christian. And I want to bring glory to God in my life. I want to demonstrate my love for Him. I want to be a positive witness to those who don't know Christ. Man, I... Yeah, I honestly, for me, I want a cool responsibility in eternity. So I want to be faithful down here. So that God will give me even more when I get up there. But notice, my work and my labor and my endurance in verse 3 has to be motivated from within by spiritual realities. So important. God says, yeah, I want you to work, serve, minister, but by faith, by trusting in me, and by being motivated by your personal faith in me. And that's the way a lot of work and ministry and service is. Even though we live in a culture where it's instant gratification, microwave generation, do this, got to have the results now, God says most of the time your ministry and work and service is going to be a faith thing. You're going to plant a seed in somebody's life or you're going to do something and you may not see the results of that for months or years down the road. But you've got to, by faith, trust that if you do the right thing and you live the way God wants you to live, that you're bearing fruit whether you see it or not. As we say even in the agrarian society, a farmer doesn't reap in the same season he sows. doesn't work that way. You sow in one season, you reap in another. Biblical principle. Biblical principles. So our work, much of the time, is by faith. I was a youth pastor for about ten years. I never saw much fruit during those ten years as far as actually, you know, some teenager going up, Oh, Pastor Jeff, I love the Bible. I love your Bible. You know, no. But my wife can attend 5, 10, 15, 20. We even are still. This is like 30 years later. We now have... Young men and women who have their own families, married, have kids and whatever, who we're still in contact with, who say, you know what, that time that we spent together, God has used that in my life and I'll you know, never be the same, on and on and on. Wow. But you see, I had to by faith just do what I know God called me because I wasn't going to get the fruit or the results of that way back then. 
It was going to come at a different time in my life to bring encouragement at that point. That's why we've got to work by faith. That's why, notice, we've got to labor by love. It's got to be motivated by the love I have for God and the love I have for other people. So I've got to check my motivation. You know, if I'm, if I'm doing things in the Christian life, and I'm, I know I need to serve and minister, but if I'm doing it for the wrong reasons, it's going to fade real quickly. The thing that's going to sustain my Christian service and ministry and labor for God is when it's properly motivated. When it's properly motivated. So, that's why when, when Christians begin to experience what we call burnout, they're either overly involved... Okay, they're involved in too much and need to scale back a little bit. Or secondly, they're just not properly motivated. They're being motivated by the externals of people's appreciation and and pats on the back and all of that. And not that that's not important. We should appreciate each other. But let's face it. I've never met one human being who said, Pastor Jeff, I'm overly appreciated. I don't want anybody to show any appreciation to me for at least a couple years because I'm just overly appreciated. None of us, none of us feel as appreciated as maybe we should. So if, if that's why we're going to do what we do, then guess what? It's not going to last for long. But if we're doing it because we love the Lord, that's a whole different thing. See, whole different motivation. So he's saying to the Thessalonians, learning to get the most out of life is always checking our motivation for why we're doing what we're doing And then the final one there is the endurance of hope. How do I endure? How do I keep on going? How do I not throw in a towel? How do I not just throw up my hands and just give up? Because I have hope. Because I'm connected to the God of hope who wants to fill me with hope and abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Even when David was in the darkest days of his life, when he was in the caves, those psalms that we go back to, that we get encouragement from in the dark days of our life, well, guess what? They were written during the darkest days of David's life. And even at those times, when he's crying out to God and even wondering if God is there, he always sort of revolves and resolves it around to, yeah, I know you're there, and I'm just going to keep on looking to you. and just You're my hope that just keeps pulling me forward, even when I don't have any strength to go forward myself. You're just, you're just there. So huge. So very huge. Let me just stop after the next one. Next one, verse 4. Rest in God's love. That's so important. Pastor Ron did a wonderful job talking about that a couple of weeks ago. We know, brothers and sisters, verse 4, love by God that He has chosen you. We, we just have to learn to rest in the love that God has for us and know that He's never going to love us any less than what He ever has and He's never going to love us any more. That His love for us is constant. It is always there. We can always count on it. We can always be confident in it. There's nothing that we can do good that's going to make God love us anymore. And there's nothing that we can do less that God's going to say, oh, I can't love you. No. It's unconditional, agape, divine Love. And it's there. And we've got to rest in it and we've got to gain strength from it. Because when you know that God loves you, and when you never get over the fact that the God of the universe loves little old me, and I'm telling you what, that can set you up for a good day. Because <laughs> no matter what happens that day, it's like, but God still loves me. Everybody else hates me, but God still loves me. You know? 
I think that's why Paul said, if God be for us, who can be against us? You know, sometimes there's days like that where you feel like the only one who still does love me is God. Well, I don't know. My dog, my dog's pretty good. I always go home to my dog. My dog still loves me, but it's just so important. Rest in God's love. That's one of the ways we get the most out of life. All right. Man, we're halfway through already. I got a lot more to cover, but that's okay. I want to stop. You have a question or a comment? That's what this is all about. Jeff. <laughs> yep. Yep. Two extremes. That's good. That's good. Yes. We're talking about a multiplicity of people praying together and the strength they get from one another. And in another way, the Bible says, "We're two or more gathered together in my name." But what about when we're stuck in that position when we're all by ourselves? When we wake up in the middle of the night frustrated, or we're we're driving down the road just frustrated as all get out. Right. And say, you know what, God, this is me, and I'm coming to you, and it's just one on one because that's all there is of me right now. I always wondered then. I mean, I, I can't imagine that's a diminished form of prayer. Or, oh. Or receives less no. than, than not at all. No. Well, I, I, no, I mean, I think our individual prayers are just as valued before God as corporate prayer is. It's just, I think the dynamic of corporate prayer can maybe encourage us in our prayer life more. Not that corporate prayer, prayer holds more weight with God than individual prayer. No, not at all. Not at all. Uh, in fact, again, most of the Psalms that we read, that they were agonizing prayers of David to God when he was all by himself in, in these caves, when Saul was hunting his life or something like that, and he would say, God, you, you know. And, and again, I tell people this all the time. If you read the Psalms, you're going to find a guy who just lets God have it. I mean, there's times where he's mad at God. God, I am mad at you. And you know what? That's why God called David a man after God's own heart. Why? Because David was transparent. David wasn't trying to... That's how David really felt. And God appreciates our transparency. He might not agree with our perspective, but He appreciates our transparency because He says, I know what's in your heart anyway. I know how you're feeling anyway. Let it out. Let it out to me. Because as you let it out to me, I'm going to begin to take all that and I'm going to begin to bring some healing in your life. That's what you see happen with David in the Psalms. And that's why the Psalms are so precious to many, many Christians and why they go back to the Psalms more than maybe any other part of the Bible in those real dark and tough times of their life. Because David speaks for us a lot of times. Like, yeah, that's what I'm thinking too. This is, this is bad. We understand. We can identify with that. So that's huge. Yeah. Anything else? Yeah. Thank goodness for that. No. no. Yeah. Yep. Yep. All God is looking for is our faithfulness. And in the Bible, when God begins to reward and say, hey, you've been faithful in this, I'm going to make you faithful over that, it has nothing to do with 
you know, what God gave us as far as a role or position or whatever. It's how faithful we've been to what God's given us. And that's what's cool, because that levels the playing field. Because every Christian can be faithful or unfaithful to the responsibilities and the role that God gave them. And based upon that, He's going to give you even more up there in eternity. So how the parable works is, like Jesus would say, I gave this one servant five talents. And he went out and multiplied those five talents and gained ten. When he gets to glory, I'm going to put him in charge of a whole lot. Because, man, he used what I gave him for the glory of God. The one that had two went out and got two. Same thing. Equal in the way God rewarded them because they were equally faithful. Had nothing to do. In fact, I love the idea that the Bible says all God expects us to use is what we have. He doesn't ever ask us to use what he hasn't given us. That's why David, again, I just go back to him. What did David have to kill Goliath? What he was familiar with? The, the, the things of a shepherd boy, you know. And even when he went out to Goliath and they tried to put Saul's armor. Remember the story? They try to stick Saul's armor on and David's like clanking around. And it's like, this stuff doesn't fit me. Get it off of me. I just need to be myself. I need to use what God gave me. Uh, I think one of the last times we were in the mine this spring, I used the example of Moses. When God called Moses to be the deliverer of his people, God said, Moses, what's in your hand? A rod. Guess what? That rod of Moses became the rod of God. And God used it to part the Red Sea and to deliver the people of Israel and stuff. God didn't say, Moses, I'm looking for something you don't know. God just says to all of us, what do you got in your hand? Well, here it is, Lord. This is what I've got to give you. And God says, you give it to me. And I'll multiply it and use it for my glory. That's the story of the five loaves and two fishes. The only story, the only miracle that Jesus ever did that's recorded in all four Gospels. Did you know that? It's the only miracle that Jesus ever did that's recorded in all four Gospels, except his resurrection, is the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 with the little boy's lunch. And one of the principles out of that is that God can take what little we think we have, even though God doesn't look at it that way, because with God, there's no, no small people, there's no small places, there's no little stuff with God. It's you give it to God, and because God is such a big God, man, He can do great big things with it. So yeah, give God what you have, and you will just watch Him. Unbelievable. Alright? Good stuff. Good stuff. Alright. Let's go on. Verse 5. Never be ashamed of the Gospel. Never be ashamed of the gospel. And that our gospel, Paul said, did not come to you in Thessalonica, in Thessaloniki merely in words, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. Surely you recall the character we displayed when we came among you to help you. Paul was convinced the gospel was powerful. That the word of God was powerful. He even says to the Romans in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. It's the dynamite of God. And so why be ashamed of it? We have, to be, we have to come to a place in our life as Christians where we are convinced that there is power in this book. And that this book isn't an ordinary book. This book is the real Word of God. And it can change our lives and it can change people's lives if we just get connected with it. Amen? I mean, that, that's where we have to come to, and that's where Paul came to. He had noticed that deep conviction, because he understood that I don't need to be ashamed. I, I just need to use the Bible, 
I just need to let the Bible loose. It's like a lion. Just let it loose and it'll work. It'll work. I have seen the Bible melt the hardest of hearts. I've seen the Bible change people's lives. I've seen the Bible put back marriages that, for all practical speaking, totally a miracle. I mean, I've seen the Bible uh, cure and heal uh, heroin addicts, cocaine addicts. I mean, you name it. God's Word is powerful. And we just have to unleash the Word of God and let it work. And be convinced like Paul that we don't have to be ashamed of it. We need to use it in our lives. And when we get the opportunity, use it in other people's lives. It's just so important. Getting the Word of God out there is a way that we can get the most out of life. But then notice at the end of verse 5, we also need to live consistently in the truth of God. Because notice he talks about the importance of character here. And that is huge. Because again, we have to understand that our message as Christians is really tied to the messenger. Whether we like it or not. And if I'm living an inconsistent life, am I, if, if I'm, I'm saying Jesus Christ makes such a difference in my life, I love God, I love God, all that, and then we go out during the week at work or whatever and we live like the devil... Those people without Christ are going to go, well, you know, you're not living much different than I am. I don't know what the big deal is. Why do I need Christ? Character is so important. had a young lady in uh, my office uh, just the other day, and she's really struggling with relationships to try to find meaningful relationships, even here at Cornerstone. She says it's frustrating. She says a couple of the gals that I'm, I'm around, you know, they... They come to church here every Sunday and they claim they love God and whatever. And she says, but they are so promiscuous. Every guy they see, they, they sleep with. I said, I just don't get it. I said, what's, what's going on here? There's no consistency with what they say they believe and how important God is in their life with the way they flesh it out on a, what's up, you know? It's like, yeah, you're right. That's huge. That's really huge. We've got to, you know, we've got to challenge each other in that respect. In fact, getting ahead of myself, but notice in chapter 2, verse 12 of 1 Thessalonians, Paul says, look, when I came amongst you as a father treats his own children, I was exhorting and encouraging you and insisting that you live in a way worthy of God who calls you to his own kingdom and his glory. Live worthy of God. We need to hear that today in the church. Again, it's not about working for salvation, but it's about living worthy of the salvation that we have. You know, as a sports person, grew up playing sports all my life and following sports, uh, there, there are some teams that they just have a reputation that precedes them. That, man, when you, when you put on that uniform, that the, the men and women who would put on that uniform, they, they wear that with pride because of the history and because of the championships and everything. And it's like, even if they stunk somewhere else, when they get traded or when they, they go to that team, man, they raise the level of their game. It's like, because they don't want to bring shame to that uniform. Well, that's sort of the same mentality that a, a Christian should have. It's like, 
Do we not look back at history and see all the Christians who died for our faith and who gave us the foundation that we have today and gave us the Word of God and all those Christians down through the ages who who put the Christian uniform on and wore it with pride and, and, and raised the level of what it was. And why should we be any different, man? When we put on Christ and put on that Christian uniform, if you when we accept Christ, we should want to live worthy of it and bring honor to it rather than bring disrespect to it. It's the way it should be in the body of Christ. And so we need to live consistently in the truth of God. Notice this, though, back in chapter 1. Cool. We need to become faithful followers of godly examples. That's the way to get the most out of life. Look at verse 6. He says, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord when you received the message with joy that comes from the Holy Spirit despite great affliction. Notice that first phrase. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. Before we can, in a sense, be a leader, we've got to be a faithful follower. In fact, let me just say this. I know not everybody agrees with this, but my personal conviction and belief is there is no such thing as leadership in the Bible. There's only one leader, Jesus Christ. The rest of us are just humble followers. And if you want to be, in a sense, then a leader, you're just being a good, faithful follower. Because Jesus Christ is the head of the church and he's really the only leader. So I've got to be able to become a good... If I'm not a good follower then in a sense, I'm not ever going to be a good leader because leadership is just fellowship extended. That's why Jesus said to His first disciples, first words out of His mouth, follow Me. Follow Me. If you can't follow Me, then... So God is looking for faithful followers. And He's looking for godly examples too. Because notice, Paul says, it's good that you imitated the Lord, but it's also good because God understands... It's great that we have the Lord as our example and we can go to the Bible for the example of Jesus and how He lived His life and all of that. We get that. But God even understands we need those flesh and blood living so we can see Him with our own eyeballs examples because we're flesh and blood too. And how does flesh and blood navigate this and and manifest this life with God out? Well, God can put some godly examples in our life to go, that's what a... Okay, I, I get that. Godly examples. Isn't it great to know that you can be a positive, godly example to others? I mean, that, talk about getting the most out of life. Is knowing that there are people who are being inspired by your walk with God. Don't get any better than that. That's, that's super. That is just awesome. And that's what Paul is saying here. He just received a lot of joy because of that. But then notice, if I become a faithful follower... Then the cool thing is, verse 7, as a result of being a faithful follower for a while, then again, you can become an example. As they, the Thessalonians, became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. I love this word example. In the Greek language, it literally means to strike repeatedly and leave a mark. And so the concept or the principle then born out of that word example in verse 7 is that you and I need to strive to leave a positive, lasting example or mark on others. That's how you get the most out of life. Striving to leave a positive, lasting mark on others. 
so that if God removes you, takes you away, you move away, they move away, whatever, first of all, they're not going to forget you very easily. Because you, you left an indelible mark on their life. And not in a negative way. It wasn't a scar. It was a mark. So it was positive. There's lots of people that can leave scars on our life. But the ones that Paul's talking about here is a positive, lasting example. And I love this. Notice the Bible says, you know what, when you and I are living for God too, we don't have to toot our own spiritual horn. We don't need to go around saying, you know I'm a mature Christian, don't you? You know that, don't you? I don't have to tell, if, if I'm doing it right, if I'm doing it right, if I'm living the way I should be living, I won't need to advertise how spiritual I am to anybody. It'll just be there. In fact, if I start having to advertise how spiritual I am and telling people how spiritual I am, probably not. Because notice what Paul says. I love this. For from you, verse 8, the message of the Lord has echoed forth, not just in Macedonia and Achaia, but in every place, reports of your faith in God have spread, so that we do not need to say anything. For people everywhere report how you welcome God to us, or welcomed us, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. See, Paul says, you didn't have to say anything. You didn't have to say a word about what God was doing in your life and how you were growing and how... Because it was evident. It was evident. And everybody around you could see it. And they were going around saying, have you, have you bumped into those Thessalonian Christians? Man, they are on fire for God. Have you heard what they did here? I mean... You and I don't need to advertise how spiritual we are. If we're doing what God wants us to do, He'll get the Word out there. People will see it and the Word will get out there. As He says here, it will echo forth. Now, I love this word. This is an important word. In verse 9, the word serve. Because how do I serve the living and true God? Well, the way I really serve Him... It's by surrendering my will. And that's how I get the most out of life. You see, in this word serve, in the Greek language, a servant was somebody who surrendered willingly their will to their master. And the Bible teaches me that I've been bought with the price, the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I am not my own. I'm God's. And so as His servant... Striving to serve Him, I need to surrender my will to His. Even Jesus said, not my will, Father, but Thine be done. As an example of that surrendering of His will to the will of the Father. And I tell you what, nothing single-handedly will get you to get the most out of life that when you and I just surrender our will to God. And stop trying to fight God on every, everything and, and think we know what's best for our lives whenever God knows us better than even we know ourselves. He created every molecule of our being. He knows us inside and out. He, he fashioned us even while we were in the womb. I mean, He understands us better than even we do. And the Bible says that when God created us and shaped us and fashioned us and all that, He gave us a unique set of gifts, abilities, talents, 
personality and all that. And no one else in the universe is just like us. And because He created us in such a unique way, He has a unique, well-fitted responsibility for us. And it fits. It fits us. Because God is not going to wire us and create us one way and then call us over here to something that doesn't fit. That's why I have to get the message out because I have so many Christians, and this is the example that I've just heard so often, you know. Well, I'm just afraid to surrender my will to God because if I surrender my will to God, He's going to call me to be a missionary in some deep, dark jungle somewhere. And I go, no, no, you don't understand. If that's the way God... Do you realize that the missionaries and the people over there, know they like being over there. Because that's the way God made it. And so when God called them to do that, that fit them. They're not miserable over there. And God's not going to call you and fit you for this unique, well-fitted responsibility here on earth if it doesn't fit you. It is going to fit you. And that's why you and I can surrender our heart and our will to God and just give our life to God. Because He knows what's best for us. He knows what fits us even better than we do. And that's part of really getting down to serving God. As I've shared before, I knew at a very young age God wanted me to teach the Bible. And I just tell people, I'm happy as a pig in slop when I'm teaching the Bible. Because <laughs> I know that's, that's why God made me the way He made me. There's nothing that brings more joy to my heart than studying the Bible hours and hours and hours every week and teaching it and sharing the Word of God with people and trying to... Because I just know that that's it. That's it. And I just need to be faithful to it. Now again, as Marty brought up, God doesn't call us all to be pastors and teachers or whatever. But whatever God has given you, He can use for His glory. And you just need to surrender it to God and surrender your will to God and say, God, here's what you've given me. Here it is. It's yours. And God's going to make something beautiful out of that if you just surrender it to Him. Last one and then we'll... Start wrapping it up. Because I at least wanted to get through the first chapter. <laughs> Verse 10. Which goes along with, as we come full circle, to really back to the first point of living every day in the light of eternity. This is a little bit of a twist. Eagerly and expectantly anticipate Jesus' return. Eagerly and expectantly anticipate Jesus' return. Because he says, okay, you've turned to God from idols to serve the living and true. By the way, they had a lot of idols in Greece. You know the whole Greek mythology thing there? So these Thessalonican Christians, they had a lot of idols to turn from. And they turned from Zeus and all of that, Aphrodite, all of that. They turned from all of that to worship of that, to the worship of the one true God, to serve Him and to surrender their will and their heart to Him. And then, verse 10, and to wait... For His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, our Deliverer from the coming wrath. The word wait there speaks about an eagerness. Now, the reason that's important is because if I'm so wrapped up on what's going on in the earth, if my heart is about earthly things, if I'm all about the temporal things, then I'm not going to be eagerly anticipating the Lord's return because that's going to mess me up. Jesus, I don't want you to come because I'm building my kingdom down here. And if you come and take, then, man, all this stuff that I've worked for, I just. 
Yeah. So that's why Jesus said, don't set your affection on things on the earth. Set your affection on things above. And lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven rather than on the earth. Because if our, if our focus is earthly things, then we're not going to be eagerly expecting Jesus' return. You know, it's sort of going to be, well, I know as a Christian I should be, you know, wanting him to return, but I've got a few things I'd like to do first. When the Bible talks about waiting on God and waiting for His Son, it means to be active in doing the things that we can and avail ourselves of the opportunities that God gives us to grow and to, to use our gifts and all of that. That's what the word wait means. Let me illustrate this. I've used this before. You go out to a restaurant. What is the girl or guy called who is at your table? He's called a what? Or she, a waiter, waitress. If they're inactive, they're not very good, are they? Oh, okay, they came, they took my order. That's the last time I saw them all evening. That's not good waiting. You see, a good waiter or waitress is actually somebody who's active and engaged in what they're doing. So don't get the idea that when the Bible talks about waiting, that a lot of people think that just means I just sort of just hold on and just, you know, okay, God, I'm just waiting. No. No, do the things that you can do. Trust God for the things you can't, but... Avail yourself of every resource and opportunity and ministry team and people of encouragement that you can. That's part of waiting on the Lord and waiting for His Son to return. Guys, there's a lot more in this book that we want to share with you in the coming weeks about how we can get the most out of life. So I hope you'll come back and bring a friend because here's what we'll do. We set up for a hundred or so tonight and obviously that's pretty good. So we'll set up for maybe a little bit more next week and maybe we'll get a few more people to come with us. All right? Let's close in prayer. Oh, no. I want to ask real quick. I've got two minutes. Comments. I, oh, I've got two minutes. I'm going to take it. Comments or questions? You can always come up and talk to me afterwards. Or you can always call me, come over to the office, see me on Sundays, whatever. Okay? You guys are terrific. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, thank you so much for giving us this book. Because, Father, we, we understand that this book really does touch on a lot of practical things that can help us get the most out of our life while we're here on earth. And, Lord, help us just to remember how precious life is and that we only have one life to really give and honor you. And so, Father, once we come to know you, help us just to be totally energized and committed and devoted to this relationship. Help us not to waste any more time, Lord, on this earth, but to just give us, um, Lord, the grace that we need just to live life to its fullest. And as Jesus said, I, I have come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. And that abundant life isn't a quantity of life, it's a quality of life. And God, I just... It so saddens me that I look around and see so many Christians who are just not living the abundant life that you want us to live. And so, Lord, I pray that maybe even through this study, that, that we who are here and maybe others who aren't, that we can share some of these things with, that, Lord, we will begin to find out what that real abundant life with you is all about. And Lord, go with us tonight. Take us home safely. Thank you for the good turnout we've had tonight. Lord, thank you for these folks who knew it was important enough to be here to study your word on Tuesday night. Because, Lord, by their presence here, they are living in light of eternity. 
Uh, and Lord, we thank you for that. May you bless them and encourage them as only you can, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Guys, you're terrific. See you next week.